welcome to part three of our series on how to write homebrew wargaming rules. In the first two chapters of our story, Tom and Greg found a 30-year-old magazine article and started talking about revisions and updates. This concept of taking an existing game you like and making changes to it is a classic, time-honored tradition in the world of miniature wargaming. You and your gaming friends have probably done this yourselves, adding a few little house rules to your favorite system. Sometimes those house rules begin to evolve into something different and unique. And in part three of our series, you'll start to see signs of that evolution as Tom and Greg discuss and debate how to shape their homebrew project. Before we drop in on their discussion, I want to remind you that this series was recorded in real time and not after the fact. Tom and Greg decided to record all of their Skype calls throughout this project. So you're getting a unique look into the art of game design as it happens. And today's episode is a long one. So sit back, relax, and enjoy part three of How to Design Homebrew Wargaming Rules. So, uh, Tom, great to see you again. Likewise, Greg. It's been a little uh, while. Uh, it is, uh, I, I can't remember what date we recorded our first episode. I know we mentioned it in that episode, but uh, today is the 9th of June, so several weeks have passed. And yeah. in the interim, uh, we have each been doing a little bit of research. I think we've each read Loose Files and American Scramble several times. Mm -hmm. uh, we've also talked to Jim Perkey of Fife and Drum Miniatures to pick his brain. Yep. Uh, and now I think it's time that we sort of circle back that we've had a little bit of uh, breathing room to think about this game and and maybe just go through section by section, which it's only a three-page system, so that won't take too long, uh, and uh, talk about the things that we want to keep, uh, the, maybe the sections where we want to change, and I suspect there could be one or two parts of the game that we're thinking of just replacing wholesale. I think so, but uh, it's a great, uh, great structure to build off of. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, when, when I talked to Jim Perky, of course, he, he was familiar, very yeah. familiar with Loose Files and American Scramble, which is kind of funny to think about the perspective on that, because, you know, this game was written in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. And just think about the number of games that have come and gone since then. I mean, the, the churn rate in this hobby of games is so fast. You know, games are published and people play them. And then two years ago, they're completely forgotten. Right. And everybody's moved on to the next game. So the fact that people have heard of this game and still play it is mm. kind of remarkable. I think so. And I think, uh, you know, the whole the whole three or four pages is is a good read, both the background and the design notes and so forth. And but I do think uh, when they they set out to capture the American battlefields, uh, I think very cleverly. And I think they, for the most part, succeed. You know, it's. Certainly a much more fluid battle type of battlefield, uh, low casualties, as we discussed last time, morale, a huge factor and independent command. I think that's also an interesting thing, how the, the American um, uh, landscape created that need for more aggressive and localized command, still at a large scale, moving brigades, right, and sometimes regiments and heroic efforts. But uh but yeah, I think it's a I think it's a really interesting rule set. Well, let's um, let's talk about how we might want to modify or or work within the confines of that rule set, and we'll just go through one section at a time. I know we each have the rules open in front of us, and I don't think there's a whole lot to say on the first two sections, which are about scale and organization. And if you're not familiar with loose files and American Scramble, it is definitely written for 
a lower level than what we're doing at Brandywine. You know, a, a base of figures in this game might be 30 to 40 guys, an inch is 25 yards, and it says one turn is five minutes. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't think that's, uh, I think we're going to have to make a couple of tweaks there. <laughs> right, right. I don't know that five minutes is all that realistic for the scale it's trying to do, you know. I don't even know what that's based on, frankly. Right. Um, I'm, I'm a believer in rules, generally, that precise ground and time scales are not necessary. And over the last 10 years, I think a lot of wargaming rules have drifted in that direction. You know, back in the 80s and 90s, those exact scales used to be a much bigger deal. Mm -hmm. And I think now people have just sort of appreciated that these things are just relative. Right. No, I think that's true. So the next shot, organization, I think we discussed, uh, you know, it's based in, you know, each stand is really a company uh, with, you know, your chosen number of figures on a base. And uh, we've gone with four of the... Uh, Pendragon 10 millimeter, um, so I think that'll that'll fit very well to the scale to the organization scale at least. Yeah, that was one of the things that attracted me to uh, this rule set in particular. The idea that a unit, a regiment, was kind of a group of bases. Mm -hmm. I, I think given the scale of the war, you do want to be able to show a unit shaking out into line, transitioning to column. Um, so absolutely. I, I, I liked I liked that, and I definitely think that's something we you know we look to keep. Mm -hmm. uh, which brings us to the next section, and this one might be a little bit more interesting: training. So, in the original rules, uh, there are five different classes of troops, and very conveniently, he tells you kind of what his assumptions are about the classes. So, you know, for first class, the best troops, he has grenadiers and light infantry, and you work your way all the way down to like you know class four. Near the bottom, you've got militia, uh, inexperienced loyalists, and he actually does have a fifth class for other Indians. I don't know that we need the fifth class, so um, I think maybe the question is, do we do we go to four classes, or do you try to push it and, and go even tighter to less than four classes? Yeah, I know. that's. I've gone back and forth with that just in terms of simplicity. Again, going back to our, our, our players in this game will be uh, members of the Battlefield Trust, uh, their staff. Um, and so, you know, we need to make it simple. But I think four is okay. It captures everything. And, and the interesting thing with the, this training is the first class really has some, uh, you know, in terms of getting rid of disruption points, which is a big factor in the game. I mean, they, they stand uh, well above the second class. Um, and it's, and that's, but it's interesting for Brandywine. That's actually uh, perfectly tailored to the British here at Brandywine in terms of the Grenadiers and the Light Infantry, probably for the uh, the Continentals, Maxwell, we could probably upgrade to Light. But yeah, given his performance, definitely. <laughs> his <laughs> historical performance was first class. Yeah. So I think, uh, I think um, and the fourth class with the militia, which, of course, there is some here, the infamous Chester County militia. Um, and... Uh, I think that captures that pretty well too, you know. So I'm yeah, I'm I'm normally a fan of streamlining everywhere possible. So normally I would be inclined to even go down to three, but in this particular case, I agree with you. I think we stick with four, and um, I'm jumping ahead, and and we won't talk about it yet because it's a later section. But under morale, right. there are there are very clear implications for if we were to cut it from four to three. And I think that that would negatively impact the mechanics that he has for morale. So when we get to the morale section, we can talk about it. But suffice it to say, for now, I think if we if we go down to four classes, that that should be pretty good. 
Mm -hmm. Agreed. So that brings us to another interesting one, and this is one I think you and I talked about off air uh, a couple of weeks ago, actually, the, the order of play. And I know that we talked about a potentially significant change to the way that the turn sequence works. Um, right now, there's a couple of steps here. I'll just read through them for the listeners very quickly. Um, order of play, step one, compulsory retreats and routes from combats in the previous turn. So that's just like a cleanup step. Uh, number two, calculate morale effects that may have been provoked by those routes. Then firing. So that firing is kind of like the first thing a unit would do. Then allocate command points for the commanders. And then movement. Interesting that movement is so deep into the sequence here. Mm -hmm. uh, finally combat. And then there is a cleanup step at the end, step seven, called redressing the ranks. Mm -hmm. Um and you and I talked about a couple of changes to this. So what uh, now that you've had maybe a little more time to think about it over the last couple of weeks, what are your thoughts on the turn sequence? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, as we, we're both fans recently, having recently played uh, General Delarmay and, uh, you know, Pickett's Charge and so forth, of having the charge be the first thing you do in a turn. Um, generally, I mean, there's there's command and control, or there's the allocation of uh, you know command points, however it is. But that that as a as the, your kinetic action is, I need to figure out if I need, if I'm going to charge, uh, and then announce that and make those movements, and then put that aside or resolve it, but then then do the movement later. So. Um, to me, I think you could actually scissor it pretty well. You'd have in order to do the charge, you have to get the command points. I think up top, right? Really, the first thing. Um, so if you took, you know, from four, kind of put that, reverse the combat and the movement. Um, I think you could get to it pretty easily without disrupting any other part of them. Because I think the morale is important. The redress the ranks. That's all great stuff. Yeah, uh, I 100% agree. The notes I made here are matching that exactly. Start with command points. I think you have to start with that. Um, and that's probably because you and I both have very similar ideas of pretty much completely rewriting the command section, which comes up later. <laughs> so I think you have to start with command points. And then I, I completely agree. We had discussed moving the charge phase up first, which is interesting because that actually does make the game a little bit longer and more complicated because you're introducing sort of a a phase that doesn't exist in a lot of other games. Normally charges are handled either with movement or combat, but mm -hmm. we're talking about creating a special phase just for charges. In this particular case, I love the idea. I like how it works in general day Arme and Pickett's charge, and I think it is incredibly appropriate for the American War of Independence, because charges were actually kind of rare. They were definitely rare to close, and this is something that Jim Perkey and I talked about um, last week when I was interviewing him. Instances of real hand-to-hand -hand combat were kind of hard right. to come by. <laughs> right. uh, they, they were not frequent, and that's because, for the most part, troops just didn't want to get into hand-to-hand -hand combat. Nobody wanted to be on the pointy end of a bayonet charge. So somebody not was going to run away from that. Hats. Yeah, not from the guys <laughs> with the big hats, right? You're like, heck no, man. <laughs> I've got <laughs> a little sticking hat. around. Uh, so I like the idea that if you carve out the charges into a separate phase, it makes them a little more special. 
I think mm -hmm. we can kind of make them rare. And when we talk about command in a second, we could talk about a way to make them rare. Yeah. Um, so, and, and I like the decision-making, as you pointed out, that it forces on a player because you have to think about that first. Mm -hmm. You know, am I going to allocate effort to initiate a charge or not? I, I like I like that coming up first. So I think we're on the same page in terms of how we want to reorder the turn sequence. And the rest of it, I think, makes a lot of sense. Ooh, one question for you. Here's Here's, here's an interesting one. In the original rules, firing happens before movement, which is a bit unusual. What are mm -hmm. your thoughts on that? Is that something that you would keep? I, I could go either way with it. I, I, I have to look and see if it complicates anything. Um, I don't see how it would. I don't. I'm not. I'm not in, in in either camp. Firmly, I'd have to play it out a bit. What do you think? My gut reaction is that if we're carving the charge phase out as a separate phase, that I like the idea that firing would happen before movement. Mm -hmm. um, I think it just puts a little bit more separation between the charging and the moving as yeah, as phases. It makes them a little bit more distinct because something else is going to happen in between them. So we'll we'll have to play test it and right. see. But that would be my gut reaction. I, I agree with that. My hesitation, actually, as I was going through that, had to do with my recent or recent experience with LaSalle 2. And one of the things I, I liked about that, and maybe I'm remem misremembering, but I believe the, the sequence in which you do move and firing is fairly fluid. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was unique for because it's actually one usually has a fixed uh, progression. I mean, that's the more typical. And I like that. But I, don't, I see no reason to introduce it to this situation. So I would agree. Uh, I like the separation between charge and movement because, again, the whole point is make charge that really should be one of the biggest decisions of your turn. What am I going to do in this regard? Is, is your assumption from reading this that every step happens simultaneously? He says at the top, all movement is simultaneous. Are we assuming then there's no mention of like a turn initiative or anything? So this no. does not necessarily appear to be an I go, you go. So do you is your read on this that like all the firing is simultaneous effect? It is. That's been okay. my assumption just based on that. That one. Uh, I mean, I include movement is basically anything. Um, right. OK. Uh, and I guess, you know, when we play test this, we may will obviously turf up those issues and we're like, wait a minute, somebody's got to decide to go first here. But I, I, off the bat, I, I take it as this. Okay. Which yeah. is interesting. That's uh, our, our most recent experience with uh, simultaneous is, of course, Bruce Weigel always uses uh, those, which is, I love it. But, and, and once you, once you get used to it, it's actually good, but it does help. Uh, you do have to have players in each quadrant who kind of know what they're doing uh, to make sure it uh, all gets done right. Yeah, and I'm wondering, now that we're talking about it, by the way, I like simultaneous movement too, but that assumes that you have, I think, some fairly veteran players around the table. Now, since we've got the guys from the trust involved, I mean, there is wonky stuff with simultaneous movement, you know, like Absolutely. just think about our charge, the charge phase. Well, well, who's who's charging first? Are you charging? Am I charging? Are you declaring well, before me? Right. That's that's you can't do the charge with because that's I, I mean, the, the way I've played it most recently, I, I think it works pretty well is you clearly have initiative and that's the benefit of getting to charge, you know, right. That charge in first. So I that's a good point. Uh, I I would rather have an initiative um, just for this situation and maybe for any, but just to clean a, it up. 
Yeah, because the simultaneous and and I get, I think in the distances we get to, um, you know, there'll be a, too much prorating in my book where you're basically everybody's waiting to do I move to because you're talking about what with combat getting within, you know, two to three inches and that triggers that. So. <sighs> yeah, OK, so we might have to engineer some kind of initiative system. Um and because we're moving the command point allocation to the first step of the turn order, we might be able to bake something into that. Yes. Uh, may maybe when you're allocating your command points, we can figure out initiative. And for the sake of the trust, I mean, maybe it should just... <laughs> maybe it should just be the whole side has initiative first. I mean, if, if again, if we had veteran players, I kind of like the idea of certain commands... You know, yeah. you roll for each general, sort of. You know, his his division goes first, his division goes second, but maybe that gets too... Mm -hmm. We can play test it. I don't know if that'll get too complicated or if we're going to have too many commands, essentially. Or you could have... That. I mean, I don't know what the... You could have command, uh, an initiative roll for each table, obviously. That's, oh, right, right, sure, yes. We, well, yeah, so that would at least introduce some of that. You know. Right. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so let's... Yeah, Look, let me make a note here. Re-engineer initiative system for me. <laughs> Did you make a note about that? <laughs> Good, okay. We got to do that. Okay. So that brings us to the command phase. That is what he has next. And mm -hmm. I think this is an area where you and I both agreed we weren't totally crazy about this. Um, oh. I don't think I would scrap it wholesale. The way it's written right now it says that each general gets command points, a die roll plus one. Subordinate commanders always have three command points, so there's a little bit of randomness. And then he has a cost to issue an order. Uh, he also has a cost to rally troops or mm -hmm. try to get rid of disruptions. So I'll be curious to see what your reflections are on this, but my thought was that maybe we... The command point thing, that's in a lot of games... So I don't think that's like a weird mechanic. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. Maybe we keep keep the idea of generals having command points. And I might clean up and make a little bit more clear the way that you can spend those points. I guess that's, that's my thoughts. Uh, I agree. I think it's it's workable. Uh, you know, um, <laughs> what got me is when I read through the command and I got in the back and I looked at that little diagram that I'd kind of, you know, Passed through quickly before it was about the cork board. Yeah. Track your command points. But then when I looked at it, it was like, okay, that would work. I like that. I mean, it's actually, <laughs> it, it's fun because it's, I love those physical, you know, aid mnemonics or whatever that, uh, or aid memoir that uh, help you do that. But anyway, I, the only thing I, I could almost go to um, just a general has a fixed number of dice um or command points don't do the d average role yeah. you know we're not going to bring a d average to the to brandywine i don't think but uh save time uh, <laughs> but you could just say look this general has five dice and this has whatever and do which i think you've uh just have them roll to see how many are how many command points they get you know whether it's four or above or or just give them a fixed amount and maybe a roll for one extra i mean i, I do like the variation but I also think it's it can be helpful to, um, you know, make it fairly predictable for a player what they're going to have. Uh, the cost is always going to soak up more than they ever have. Is usually the yeah way it works. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you. And I, and I don't have a strong inclination one way or the other, whether or not, whether or not you give, you know, let's just say Washington has five dice that he can roll in the command phase. And if he gets a four or better, he gets to keep the dice, right? Mm-hmm. Like, sure. Then he can spend it. Um, we could do that, which I believe is actually very similar to the way that it's done in, um, in general day or may or, or your other idea, I think is also totally valid. You get to say, look, Washington is rated four, which means he automatically gets four dice. And then maybe he has like a little star next to his name. And that means he can maybe get a bonus die. You know, maybe, maybe a really good general has two or three stars after his name. Maybe a crappy general has no stars after his name. He just gets his fixed pool. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't know which one of those is better. Uh, you know, you could you could work out the statistics on the math basically to ensure that it's going to be a similar statistical outcome. Well, again, it gets to how much dice rolling happens. People like dice rolling, and I think we've talked about how the combat might work and introduce more there. So I don't know that we need to introduce it here. I think it's one of these things in terms, again, the players we're going to be working with. Um, variable command a little bit of variation is probably okay but i I think it's probably better for them to you know have a a fairly predictable number don't make the game about hey did i did i roll to be in command because you know you fail that turn and i i do think it's i i I say that but i do like not that i'm you know hesitant units units that are obviously not able to do everything they want to uh you know that's one thing it is realistic because in, in a lot of these battles, there are lulls in the battle where, you know, certain yeah. brigade divisions are literally doing nothing. And well, the way you simulate simulate that in a game is that you had a really bad command roll. <laughs> right, and so right. you don't get to do anything. However, to your point, it's not always the most fun in a game. Mm-hmm. No, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of games like uh, I'm thinking of War Master, right? You know, like the command system in War Master is like, Oh, you know, I pick a unit and I roll a die, and if I pass the roll, that I then I can continue. Well, you know, we've all been there where you fail your first die roll, and it's like, okay, so I don't get to do anything this turn. Great, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Uh, no, that's that's not fun. So but, uh, maybe after talking about this, maybe we lean toward your second idea, which also I think has some historical merit in that. In most of these battles, in all these battles, you know, Washington knew who his good subordinates were. Sure. Okay. He knew that he was going to get a better performance out of Green than Sullivan. That was not a surprise. That was not like a variable. It was a known quantity. So maybe that does lend itself toward your idea of, look, Sullivan has three dice every turn, no matter what, and one star after his name. You know, he he will only ever maybe get four, whereas you could give a guy like Green four dice every turn, and he has two or three stars after his name. Because he, he might just be a lot better on a certain turn. Yeah. Yeah, that I think that's fitting, too. I mean, he there's there's times when that really would boost the ability of the Green player to do something, you know, something uh, special. Okay, I just made a note for that. I really like that idea. Um, so two other things then to talk about under command. One of them is what are people going to be able to spend these dice on? Mm-hmm. Uh, and currently there are four things you can spend dice on. You can spend dice to issue a move order. Actually, it's not a move order. If you read the rules carefully, and this is a little confusing, it's a bonus move. Uh, 
Yeah. You can spend one CP to enhance your movement, it looks like, an additional D6. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, frankly, written a little confusingly. Um, you can also spend dice to issue an order, and it says a unit takes a full turn to react to an order, but nowhere else in the rules does it tell you what the hell an order is. So that, to me, was very confusing. The other two made a lot more sense. Uh, you can spend a lot of dice. It's really expensive. Three dice to get a bonus in close combat. Only a plus one. That's kind of weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, or the last one plus was to rally. Uh, but somehow in the combat calculation, they get, they say either plus one or plus two, depending on how many CPs were spent. So, Oh, is that how it is? You get more per dice. Okay. Well, maybe that's what they say, but they don't give us a translation um, for, yeah, combat plus one or two. General with unit depends on how many CPs he spent on inspiring troops. So, huh. Well, why does it say it costs three? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Uh, hmm. So, um, oh, the, before we get too far down this, just to back up. So when we were talking about the Washingtons and the Sullivans and so forth, we were talking about uh, the generals of, I mean, here, as you say, they have subordinate commanders always have three CPs, subordinate to these guys who we've been talking about. So it's sort of like, okay, what does a Washington do with his points as opposed to, you know, somebody lower down? I think very related to your question here is how many commanders are we really going to represent? Right, right. How many levels of command are we talking about? I mean, we've got a base unit in our game being a regiment. But if you look at the way that these armies are organized, there's several levels of command above regiment. You know, are we going to put brigade commanders out there? I mean, there's also like wing and division commanders, and then eventually you do work your way all the way up to Washington. So how many guys do you want running around on the table? Yeah, I think to me for this, it's it's army, wing, and division possibly. But to have every brigadier out there and they each have a number of CPs to use, uh, it's a, that's that's not that's a road to to hell. <laughs> the road to hell, <laughs> <laughs> just endlessly like you know, accounting for that, and it's so. I I agree, yeah. I agree. And if we ever use this rule set to do another battle, I think it could be a scenario specific thing where, depending on the scenario, you could figure out how many generals you want to represent. Maybe in a smaller battle, you can represent brigadiers, but. Sure. For sure. for this yeah, game, there's ju- there's way too many troops here for us to have brigadier commanders out there. Agreed. Yeah, I mean, I have the order of battle up here for Brandywine, and my God, there's a ton of brigades. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there's actually a pretty decent number of divisions, if I count that up right now, and that would be a good way to tell. So obviously you got Washington at the top of the food chain, so you got him right out of the gate. And there's some unattached formations, uh, like Maxwell, who's really not technically in anybody's specific chain of command. Then we've got uh, a division under Armstrong is one, Green is two, a division under Wayne is three. Then you've got Sullivan as a wing commander, but he is also a division commander, so he takes you up to four. Stephen, five, Alexander, six. So that's six division commanders on the American side plus Washington. I That's a lot, but not unreasonable given the size maybe, of this game. Maybe two per player, depending on how... Right. That's probably manageable. 
that seems very manageable to me. Now, if you look over at the British order of battle, it's a little weirder. Um, they don't have divisions. There's only brigades. Now, their brigades are definitely bigger. Some of their brigades are like division-sized for the Americans. Uh, you've got Cornwallis as a wing commander, Niepausen as a wing commander, and how? That's it. Th mm. Those are the only three guys that are above brigade command. I don't know if that creates a problem for us or not, having three generals on one side and seven on the other. I mean, we could adjust the CP ratings accordingly. Well, you know, you could on the British uh, to get, you know, to get six out of them. You could reach down to some of the, you know, Matthew or somebody like that, like the guards um, units. But what is Cornwallis doing then? I just... Well, I mean, I guess Cornwallis at that point is just like a wing commander. Yeah, he's everybody. He's 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 the uh, Hessian Jaeger Corps and everybody else in that. That gets you to one extra. Uh, actually, so in reading a little bit deeper into this, I think we could pretty easily get a fourth British commander, uh, Charles Gray, Earl Gray. <laughs> it looks like even though he's the commander of the 3rd Brigade, he also exercised a little bit of command over 4th Brigade, and there were 3,000 troops in those two brigades alone. So you could kind of carve him out, maybe, yeah, uh, as an additional sub-commander. Uh, the other question is if the, uh, just for atmospheric, if the, uh, uh, the Hessians uh, would be carved out. Because you've got a sizable force there under uh, Donop or mm -hmm. Sturm. I mean, Sturm particularly. Uh, that's a that's a pretty sizable command there. Yes, sure. uh, I, I agree. Yeah, you're right. Maybe we do that. Maybe we just carve them out separately. I mean, I know it's not you know hewing exactly to the strict structure of the way these armies were, but you know we're playing a game here. <laughs> In a limited amount of time. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I, I think we can make it work. I do. Yep. Um, now, that does lead to a, a unit integrity question while we're on this topic. So if we're not going to have brigade commanders out there, then are you going to insist in any way that people keep the regiments of a brigade in some kind of radius? Or I do think that's important. Or do you just kind of let them mix it up? So that that gets the whole issue of honestly, what makes a what makes a unit go away, right? And so casualty removal in these rules is uh, looks like it's fairly slow going. Mm -hmm. Trigger a base removal, so it comes down to morale. And at what point do they run away at maximum speed to be on artillery range next train? So. That's just a question to me of if you keeping them as brigades, um, you know, can help identify perhaps, although they, they're not, they don't route as a brigade, obviously. That's the thing. Like, you know, if somebody's one regiment routes, then if we introduce some kind of distance that they need to be apart, then, you know, he's going to route potentially out of command distance. Right. Well, I think, I mean, I think for uh, just, um, I would start with brigade structure, meaning okay. here it is, and and the enforcement of. I mean, I would just kind of say that um, 
what how was it usually handled if two brigades because obviously they could stumble into combat together if they were the same area and that's fine they could do that it, it's usually yeah i don't see i don't see the reason to complicate it but i would i would certainly start with kind of the here's your brigades. maybe there's a you know when we get to victory points or when we think about um uh how to reward that maybe part of that is keeping your brigade I mean, whoever exits with, you know, as a as a general, like within the battle, who performs the best? I mean, I think that might be an interesting mechanism to score them. Maybe some incentive to keep your brigade, you know, do stuff, but don't destroy it, you know, which is never a good career move. No, 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 it's not. Uh, okay, well, let's, we can revisit that. I guess I, I'm, I'm with you for the moment. Let's assume that we're not going to have brigade generals represented on the table and that we are going to have some kind of rule that you need to keep your brigade relatively close together. Well, it does get to the point of, okay, how are we, I mean, this is, this is a rabbit hole, this whole, but it's, it's really, how do we communicate orders to units? I mean, if you're not, so within, within what's, here, here's I, I'm with you, and here's this is the question that I have about the current command system, where it says issue an order to CPs. Well, it doesn't ever tell you what an order is. So, what do we want an order to be? <laughs> well, we talked about that last time, and I thought what British Grenadier does in terms of orders, and we even simplifying that, it's basically, you know, go, you know, ch move, charge, or or defend, and you know, just simply put, those are the states you're units are in and determined by the use of an order to do that and get some benefit obviously if you're on defense um it must be some way or some benefit um that could accrue to you there but that that's my thought is as reflecting orders i do think i think it helps um it helps focus activity right i mean like if so why wouldn't i mean obviously you don't so what's the penalty of putting everybody on obviously you don't want to put everybody on charge because that defeats one what really happened we can make it very expensive obviously uh so that's really what keeps you from putting everybody on charge you know standing is free moving is one thing and charging is fairly expensive I totally agree. And my question for you, now that you put it that way, is do we actually, are, are we going to create a system where you put like a little chit or token out next to a, a division that says stand, assault, or charge? Or is that something we're just baking into the way that you spend your CPs? Look, if I want this division to defend, the cost is zero. They sit there, I don't spend anything. If I want them to move, then the cost is one or whatever cost we come up with. Right. And if I want anybody in this thing to assault, it's going to cost a shit ton of CPs. You know, I'm really going to have to expend some energy to make that happen. Mm -hmm. I think I certainly we don't need to clutter the table. I think if you're on defend orders, you don't have a market. But I do think, you know, one, it's always helpful to know if a unit moved just in general. I mean, and, and with all the units and all the players, I think uh, some token for that. And I think a charge token would be appropriate, too. But, you know, that should be. And then everything else is on defense orders or obviously they don't need a marker. Mm, OK. Well, what do you think of that? You seem to you teed it up in a way that. Uh, you no, know. 
I, I, I don't have a leaning any particular way. Yeah. I'm just wondering what the, you know, what, what's the cleanest way to do this? And I'm happy to experiment first with, you know, with actual tokens. Um, well, I don't mean so much the token as your order representation is more like so people know what's, what a unit has done or is doing. Right. The charge, if we do the charge first, that should actually be pretty obvious. So there you've eliminated a need for a token probably. Okay. Uh, so it really, to me, it wasn't like, how do I represent orders? You pay for them. I think pay, I think the menu and paying for them uh, accomplishes that. Uh, but I do think you need, a, you know, one or two markers for states of units. Okay. Obviously, you know, retreats or routes or something to. Um, so are you thinking then that the menu of ways to spend these CPs is going to be move, charge, and then do you want to keep his other two that you can spend CPs to inspire in combat and you can also spend them to do a rally? Uh, definitely on the rally. Um, okay. Uh, the, the, the charge, um, I got his point about, he made a point about it. And I guess if we're talking the generals we're talking about, um, it's, it, my, my big question is, do you really need it? Or do you just give a general a combat bonus, you know? If he inserts so, himself. Right, and he has a risk, which he has a risk here too. Um, he does. So, I don't know why pay for it, and you know, you may get a situation where you, you know, we often there's games where everybody's always finding a general to throw into combat, and uh, so that doesn't look right. I mean, shouldn't be necessary. So I could go either way, but yeah, definitely the rally and and maybe the, some sort of combat bonus. I'm in agreement. And I guess the actual values of what we're going to charge for this will just sort of depend on how, how many <laughs> how many dice you want to give guys. Yeah. Because if I look at Green, for example, we'll just use him as an example. So he has a division with two brigades, and there are quite a few regiments. Mm -hmm. uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Uh, depending on how you want to count it, he either has eight or nine regiments under his command divided into two brigades. So if you're going to charge a player a point, essentially, to move a regiment, he's going to need a lot of command points. Yeah, yeah. No, I think regiment, I mean, that's where I think you go back to the brigade structure is, is it's just your friend here, right? It's, uh, you know, as a brigade, because that's really, I think that's, I mean, at the level we're talking about here with green, I think the brigade is probably the right level um, yeah. to do that with. Uh, yeah, I like that. And actually, now that I think about it, that might be the answer to how you deal with the issue of regiments that have gotten like out of a certain radius. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's how you bake this in. Uh, you know, as long as your regiments are within X right. number of inches of each other, they all move as one. However, if you had a regiment that you detached or he got routed way far away, maybe he costs his own point. That's right. That's how you if do he, it. If he's outside of brigade integrity, essentially. That's very pleasing to me, because I do think brigade integrity should be right. Pleasing, yes. <laughs> yes. But it's, an, it's a great way to do it. It doesn't complicate it, and it just that one you either are or aren't, and it's done with. Okay, so we've got two ways to spend dice there uh then the question for charge so charge we agreed was actually going to be sort of like the first thing that you do after you get your dice um 
how do we want to represent that? Is there, it, do we want to say that a charge is done? It doesn't feel right that it would be done per brigade. Like that doesn't seem like a brigade level order. Um, no, no, I don't think so. Um, I guess the question would be a charge and a regiment. Is there, I'd have to look at, is there any support element in the, uh, combat? The current there, combat system? Uh, let's take yeah. a look. Um, uh, two units can gang up on one and, um, you take the best quality, but so that's, uh, yes, the, he uh, does say that for two units attacking one, the attackers total up all their factors. Oh, and divide by two. two. So it's an average. An average, and they get the best grade of troop of the two. Right. That's so, really all he has in here for support. Yeah. So that's a question of would supported attacks be likely? Um, and so, so what's the problem with a brigade attack? Meaning, you could basically say this brigade is allowed to attack, and then regiments of that brigade. You know, um, any of them can attack, but then you get into multiple combats, which, yeah, I, I see the issue. Um, I think when we talk about attack, we're talking about initiating a bayonet charge, right. which is something which is something that's right. actually kind of rare. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, so my first thought, and we could play test this, would be to come up with a cost per regiment. And if you wanted to send in multiple regiments, you could. It would just cost a ton of your points. <laughs> Up to a point where it's not possible for correct for a given for green. If green has six points, right? You know, that's two, possibly three regiments in an attack, and that would be enough. That's a brigade. I mean, it's so. Yeah, I I, I like that. I like it. It's regiment to attack. Brigade to move, regiment to attack. Um, makes sense. Okay. Let's let's start with that and see how it works. By the way, I liked your idea that attaching, like, why does that cost anything? I think we can just eliminate that for the sake of simplicity. Yeah. Um, if you want to throw yourself into a combat, I think you throw yourself in, and we just, I do think the risk should be very high because to, players do kind of attach their generals willy-nilly in a lot of games. Um Okay, well, actually, his risk table is pretty nasty. I thought so, too. That's real nasty. <laughs> you roll, you get a one, and then you roll again. Okay, all right, let's keep that. Let's keep that. I like that. Uh, and then I agree that the last thing that there is to spend points on here that he has is uh, rally. Get rid of disruption points, and that seems like absolutely something you should be able to do. Mm -hmm. uh, it's pretty expensive. It, it's very expensive in his system. It is. I had a question about, uh, you know, it's it's two for two CPs. Yeah, it's two yeah. two to get one disruption point off. Two to get one. Yeah, that's that is. Well, again, I mean, you have to look at how it look gets soaked up. Um, you know what it means, but that's certainly also one you would expect to be at a regimental level. Definitely. So yes. that's even more costly, really, depending. You know how much shock one ends up with in these battles i would be a fan just for our first play test of going one to one mm -hmm. yeah that seems good start um and actually as i look down through the notes that i just typed now that we finished discussing all this i kind of like the fact that 
everything that we talked about costs one CP except for charging. There you go. <laughs> yep. Which makes sense. That brings us to the heart of the game, uh, which is disruption points. Mm-hmm. That's really what makes this game, I think, tick. And it's it's the core concept that British Grenadier borrows as well. Um, and in this game, disruption points represent kind of, it's a catch-all for everything. Uh, he calls it disorganization, demoralization, and desertion. Um, I, I was basically thinking that we kind of keep this whole section exactly as written. What were your thoughts? That was my thought as well. If I mean, one, I think it, it, it's a great, it's a great aspect of the rules, but two, it, it's so interlinked within the rule structure that <laughs> if you mess with it, you're, you're suddenly messing with uh, a lot that you might not need to. So. Yeah. Well, in this section, he also, by the way, does have the note written for, it's a little out of sequence, but for when you redress ranks at the very end of the turn, mm-hmm. um, depending on what morale class you are, you get to remove automatically that many disruptions. So, uh, you know, a first class unit, he says, can remove two disruptions at the end of every turn if they are stationary and not in combat. Whereas if you go all the way down to fourth class, you can only remove a disruption. But if a commander spends command points. Right. Right. Uh, so I, I actually, I really like that. And that's something else that you and I talked about off air before. Um, a weird quirk of this game is that there are no morale tests. There, there's no dice rolling for morale, which is very unusual. Right. But it's right. baked in, and it's and this is exactly how it's baked in. Right. Well, as a player, I can tell you that I, I least enjoy making morale tests. So it'll be nice <laughs> for our players here to you can slowly you can see the accumulation of the effects and know you're about to break as opposed to one one die roll. So yes, you like it, but. Uh, what I love, and we briefly touched on it, is you know the quality of the troops here, the Grenadiers, Light Infantry versus the second class regulars. I mean, those Grenadiers can remove up to two DPs, disruption points per turn, as opposed to one for the second class. So they're going to get back in the fight uh, much quicker uh, and stick around longer. So that, that'll be very interesting, I think. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. Um, so I think we're in agreement. We just kind of leave this whole section pretty much as it is. Yep. Uh, which brings us to movement. And this is something that we did discuss, I think, in our first um, episode when we were talking about these rules initially. Uh, the movement in Loose Files and American Scramble is variable. It's random. And while you and I are both, I think, generally fans of that, for this particular game, it's going to be way too many die rolls and too much too much work i think we just we go with a fixed movement rate and we're done with it i agree with that uh i do love the the reason they try average or you know variable movement here to reflect the landscape i mean i think that's 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 great but it just in terms of practicality fixed i think is in total agreement there just coming up and the right numbers as we discussed in the first session was how to get through a turn uh sequence in in the right amount of time. Right. My, um, my only question under this section that I think is worth a brief discussion is that he has a line in here about units that are in skirmish formation getting a, a bonus move. And I don't know. I kind of liked that. Um, that's something that I might, 
I don't know, should we consider, uh, we could just make it a fixed bonus move, I realize, but is, is that a place where we want to consider making it a random bonus move? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know how many units are actually going to be in skirmish, which means that this isn't something you'd be doing all the time, presumably. Um, or is it still just not enough payoff for making a die roll? I mean, if you roll a one on a D6, great, I get to move one extra inch, you know, what was the point of that die roll? <laughs> Yeah, that that's. Um, yeah, I, I, I could go either way, but uh, I think after we add it all up, uh, that die roll may seem like it's unnecessary, trivial. Okay. Okay. Good. All right. So we'll yep. um, we'll just go straight up fixed movement right across the board. I am good with that. Now movement uh, does. Um, Right, it's the it's the maneuver, not straight movement, but the maneuver will pick up the uh, disruption points. Yes, so this this is interesting. Um, he the way that these rules are written, if you're moving across difficult ground, if you're changing formation, basically if you're like doing anything, <laughs> mm-hmm. you automatically accrue disruption points. Mm-hmm. Um, that feels like an integral part of the game that we can't completely get away from. My only question is, do you want to get rid of any of those penalties to just try and streamline it at all? Or do you, do we just keep this wholesale? Well, I think the, the, uh, the idea is certainly solid. Um, and another great way to reflect the, um, the terrain, you know, and the impact on those formations. But, uh, I agree. I, I don't know off the top of my head, but I, I think from looking in here, there's there's some simplification we could get to there. Do you have one in mind? Uh, yeah, like the very first one says wheeling. So to wheel a unit, you treat it as an uphill move, which, by the way, earlier it says if you move through woods or go uphill, it's minus one inch, which, I mean, that's kind of a worthless penalty in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> either we're going to have it be a penalty or not like one inch is not even worth talking about right um but wheeling says that not only do you lose one inch but you also take a disruption point i i don't know if <laughs> i don't know if that seems like something that should take a disruption point but have you ever wheeled greg no, no, I haven't, uh, and certainly not under fire, Tom. Um, so I think you you lose. It, it depends on how much you enforce the wheeling, the typical wheel, how much it loses. That you get into the whole geometry of how long your line is and everything else. Like so, that's. I don't like a strict wheel, um, and so this sounded like it basically pivot one end of line and you lose an inch. Actually, I the lose the inch seems trivial, but it it saves you from having to measure. Really, I guess too much like it depends on people these people won't have i mean a dba background for example you know you mentioned wheeling a dba and suddenly it's like oh it's a whole process so i'd be in favor of getting rid of anything that simplified wheeling um but the disruption point um i could see taking i honestly i could see any formation change getting the disruption point but i agree but so the question is are there just things in here like minor obstacle um, there's a question, cross minor obstacle takes one turn, takes one disruption point, two if under fire. I mean, that's pretty, that's a lot for crossing a creek. I mean, I'm not a fan of it taking one turn. Right. Uh, right. But I could totally see the disruption point. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's actually in the, uh, when we played, uh, 
British Grenadier, that's where I remember disruption points the most. It's crossing a field or crossing some creek or something like that. But so I don't know. The wheeling, I could certainly live with uh, just making that just easier. Well, uh, the bigger question on the wheeling, which you touched on, is how liberal do we want to make movement? Right. Well, they, I yeah. mean, is this going to be like an altar of freedom thing where you can move 360 degrees however the hell you want? Or, or do we think that it's important that there is some kind of limitation on how you can move and and for the record generally speaking i am in favor of making movement liberal so that mm. players aren't wasting time fiddling with right. their units however however in this particular era of warfare that we're talking about uh, this is actually kind of important mm -hmm. no it is so there should be some penalty for it but it also shouldn't i i don't want people you really don't want people calculating how much they can wheel i think if they've never done a wheel before just in terms of the angle, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. So I would say definitely have wheeling. Is it a half move to wheel and the distance is basically whatever your movement is or half? I mean, it's or I guess it's half your movement. So if you move six inches, you can wheel three, but fairly liberally. Yeah, my my gut reaction on this, and this is just a first take, would be that we draw a straight line across the front of the unit mm -hmm. and say, as long as you're moving somewhere to your front, you do whatever the hell you want. Yeah. But if you want to sidestep, if you want to retrograde, if you want to do anything other than move forward, mm -hmm. you got a problem. Okay. Then, then you're going to have to take a disruption point. Then you might have to lose some move distance or, you know, there's going to be some kind of penalty, but if you're moving forward in a general forward direction, go ahead <laughs> yeah. no i'm fine with that uh because again i i it shouldn't be hard i think it's it, 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 any complication to moving or action or keeping this thing rolling just you know should be set aside so uh i i, I like the simplicity of that um what are your thoughts on the interpenetration penalty yeah you know that's one again where you get into the uh quality of the troops um impacting Right. My, yes. If they're a higher grade than you. Um, well, well, no, actually, in this particular case, under maneuver, it just says if you have a collision or interpenetration, each unit takes one DP. Oh, you're right. OK, I see that. Um, when you get to routing, when you get to routing from combat, that's where you're remembering that other thing about morale correctly. But this appears to be just like under the general maneuver section. I mean, it's, you know, it's pretty simple. Um, people often ask, you know, it, the whole issue is allowing interpenetrations at all. I mean, that's your first, if this is rule set where you allow that. Um, and I think it, it's easier for, it's either, you got to be one way or the other. I mean, like, you know, you can't. Um, but so this is a simple way to capture it if you want to allow interpenetrations. Uh, I totally agree. I would keep it. And yeah. I like the simplicity of it. Here's here's something for you. Um, it, the second part of this collisions interpenetrations caught me. Uh, retreating or routing units move round supports. We asked earlier, where's supports? What is the support in this rule? And, it's uh, not clearly defined. Right. Um, I mean, it, it comes up in the sense that it, maybe supports are things that you can fall back behind because that's one of your routing limita limitations to how far you route. But 
Um, My feeling on this line that you just read when I saw that earlier was that we just completely ignore that. Okay, I can do that. (laughs) 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 I was was more the puzzle of what do you mean by supports? Yeah, if if support isn't really defined clearly, then at least for now, until we get through a play test and find out how bad we're screwing all this up, um, why not just bag it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I see actually where he's going with it. So, yeah, that that is bag. That's a bagger. That's I don't see any benefit there. You, <laughs> that's <you>. a bagger. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then we get to morale, and this is related to interpenetration. So it says that uh, troops will ignore the retreat or the route of a friendly unit with a lower training, Mm -hmm. Um, but still take one DP if a unit routes past them within six inches. And then there's just a series of cascading penalties. Um, If the unit that routed is your your quality or better, then you take more DPs. Mm -hmm. Um, There's actually like four different circumstances. This to me was a case where I love the concept and I want to keep it but I also would love to streamline these circumstances into something cleaner. Mm-hmm. What were your thoughts on this? Yeah, I love I love the concept. Uh, would like to keep it same. I mean, to me, it's really it can be binary. Um, you know, equal grade versus lower grade. I mean, just you know, pick one or the other. That's the penalty or or worse. Um, the number of DPs you take, um, again, I don't have a feel for, you max out at five DPs. Um, well, one of the penalties, two of his penalties actually say that in addition to taking DPs, you, you take a full casualty. Yeah, yeah, that one. Uh, so that's actually, if, if it's two DPs and a casualty, that's actually seven DPs. <laughs> right, well, I mean, and that's a, that's really how much you want a cascade effect like this, because if for some reason the luck of the dice and the grenadiers, British grenadiers come routing past you, uh, you know, you could see a, I mean, <laughs> some real impact there. And maybe that, maybe, I mean, I like the feel of it, but I could easily see it being a little too dramatic there for, you know, if, if it just goes wonky and uh, you have units routing. I mean, obviously we can see in the play test, but I, I could certainly, I'd have a problem simplifying you know, down to two DPs. And I don't know about the casualty. I mean, I've, I've still, I don't have a feel for how much actual base removal casualties is going to make a difference. You know, I know, I know. I, I, I don't either. And we're going to have to play test it to find out. Um, this actually was a point where I made a note here on my paperwork where I thought we could consider something random. Um, and by that, I mean, Instead of it saying, you know, the the worst circumstance here is uh, if a unit of a higher grade routes within six inches of you, it says take three DPs and a casualty. Okay. My thought is, well, that's actually eight DPs. So maybe this would be kind of cool to do away with the casualty part. Just look at it as DPs and say that if a unit of a higher grade routes near you, you take three DPs plus D6. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you, you don't know how bad it's going to be. It could be real bad, <laughs> or you could roll a one, and you only take four DPs, which is still pretty bad. Right. Um, again, that's a case of every time you introduce a die roll, you're introducing more time. So 
I know that there is a trade-off involved. I think it sounds like a cool idea, but I don't know if it's going to be worth the die roll or not. Mm-hmm. Well, I like the random uh, aspect of it. Uh, but, yeah, it just really comes down to that. I think it's one of those, you know, I think anytime you're adding a die roll, you put it on the the list, you know, in the margin and, and revisit. Think, and say, think about it. Because <laughs> you may end up with three you wanted to add, and, and at some point you have to figure out. But I, I like the randomness. I like simplifying it. Uh, but the, the, the base structure, I think we should preserve, you know, for units routing within, you know, certain distance to you, it's going to have an impact. Yeah. Uh, I, I agree. Total, totally agreed. The impact of five DP. I'm actually. You take a casualty. Take a casualty. Yeah. Well, okay. Again, that gets back to the casualty. I mean, that does enter into combat, I suppose. When you count up the bases that are involved in combat, it looks like that's a factor as far as the ratio. So it is. Okay. Well, we'll come back to that, but agree on the general approach. Uh, then we get to shooting. Uh, and he has it broken down. He has it broken down into artillery, and then he also has separately for infantry. And I will be honest, my notes here are that I did not like this at all. I thought this was way overcomplicated. Um, there were a ton of modifiers for artillery, and actually one of the conversations that I had had with Jim Perkey uh, in our previous episode when I was interviewing him is that artillery in this period right. is so- not. this is not Napoleonic artillery. Right. This is not the Civil War. I mean, these guns <laughs> are not wonder weapons. Right. Uh, and there's also not a ton of them out there. I mean, we're talking about three-pounders and six-pounders for the most part. Mm-hmm. So I, I'd like to really find a way to simplify the way that artillery shoots. And I also was not crazy about the way that musketry was done, where you know, you're like maybe dividing the number of, you get a die per base, which I totally like. That makes sense. Um, but then there's like a series of penalties where you might have to divide it in half. You might even have to divide it in half again. Um, and skirmishers, I really have no idea why, but skirmishers are more effective at shooting than a, a line. (laughs) Uh, it seems like to me, skirmishers should be much less effective. Right. Right. Less men. Certainly. Yeah, so I threw a lot of stuff at the wall there, but what was your first take? Uh, yeah, I, I thought the firing um, was way too complicated, plus the pluses and minuses for the... I mean, you actually, part of its presentation, some of this could actually be simplified into a table a la yes. General yeah. de RMA or, you know, others. I mean, I, it, which they're very similar in some of the effects, uh, but it's just organized in a better way. But I totally agree on the skirmishers and the artillery. Uh, those should be uh, adjusted. Um, and then, you know, again, you see a lot of pluses and minuses for our rules. I mean, for this situation, you may end up with only a couple of them. I mean, honestly, you know, there's no heavy gun involved. Right. Um, but again, I think organizing it is probably does a wonder in dropping a few things uh the dp you know i'll tell you where i did go because i i just the i do i have been a fan of the uh, the firing tables and and i hate to keep going back to it but either you know general darma or others but it's basically you know you're rolling you're rolling the same number of dice every time two dice and you get a result 
Um, and and you're looking at the table and you just have to know which and you get used to reading the same line for most of your firing. And in, in this game, it could literally be one for artillery and one for, you know, maybe three. The issue for us would be you'd have to convert all this uh, probability into one of those charts. But that was that was one thought. But uh, I, it definitely needs uh, needs work here. You know, without belaboring this too much, maybe maybe this is one where you and I each just kind of go to the drawing board and kind of mock up an idea. Yeah. Uh, I think your chart idea uh, is totally workable, um, and and that makes a lot of sense. The other option, then, and this might be something I mock up so that we can compare, is that you know you just you roll one die for every base that you have of infantry, and you know whatever. If you get a five or six, it's a disruption point. <laughs> well, actually, that that's a good point. I think you're, I think you're done. Yeah, I think that's a. I mean, we don't, I mean, I'm not going to go do my homework assignment when you present an option like that. So <laughs> actually, I mean, easy out time, either for this or for combat, but yeah, this is, that's a great opportunity. Players love to roll the dice and you can easily see whether they convert to uh, impact or not without having to reference a chart. So that's, that's a good, that's a very strong direction. Um, and that's also a way for, you know, the number of bases that you have, I think, to 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 make a difference, which they should. I mean, some yeah. of these units are much larger than others, so they're just they're going to get more dice. And that's easy for the players to look at on the table. Oh, I have four bases. I roll four dice. OK, then he's got a section for casualties, which is just if you have five DPs, then you, you take a casualty. I, I like that. I think we keep that. Um, and then we get to combat and com my feelings about combat are exactly the same as they were for the shooting. There's 14 different modifiers here and each side rolls a single die. Um, I don't, I don't like the 14 modifiers. No. I, I think it's, it's way unnecessary. By the way, five of the 14 modifiers just have to do with whether or not you outnumber the guy by three to two or two to one or three to one. And it's like, why would we even bother with that? Why don't you just count up the number of bases you have? And right. you, you, you can get rid of all those modifiers. If you just switch this to roll one die per base, you, you get rid of all of it. No geometry, no ratios, Greg. That's more. <laughs> <laughs> no DBA. Yeah. <laughs> and we can say that because we've both played a lot of DBA. Yes, we were in those plays. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I agree. That's, a, that's another great way to, and that'll actually speed up things tremendously. Now, some of these modifiers you have to have. Um, and, and the big one, by the way, which we should point out for listeners, which I, I do really like, is that it's plus three for each training grade higher than the opponent. Yeah. Which, you know, if you've got a grenadier unit going up against a class four militia unit, one versus four, that's a, <laughs> that's a big deal. Right. That's three right. grades higher. So that's plus nine right out of the gate. Which, I mean, could end up, uh, depending on who they're facing, I mean, put somebody in a, you know, moving backward at a fairly quick pace, which is what you should see, right? Right. Like, <laughs> yes. Moving backward at a quick pace. Yes. I like how you said that. That is what you should see. Uh, something that I would pretty much keep, I think, wholesale from the rules are his results table. Yeah. Um, you know, and this is something that you see in a lot of games. This is very common. Uh, you know, Fire and Fury as a results table, uh, General Day Armee, which we've talked about many times as a results table, and I think we can keep it. I agree. I like the results table. Uh, it was interesting going through this again, both at this and in the notes, where you get a bonus for back to the whole idea of 
bayonet charges being rare and and what the impact is. Um, you know, you get a you get a bonus for British units with a bayonet attack, but um, if you're receiving a bayonet attack and you get you're in a standoff, uh, you don't take the casualty. Uh, the attacker is going to take one more casualty than you are. Uh, so it, it's definitely going to make it a rarer occurrence. And uh, I think that feels right. So I thought that was a clever way to introduce that bonus, but also make the trade-off um, show up there. Yeah, it's an extra rule. Um, it is a little bit of extra complication, but I agree for the historical flavor. I love it. Totally, totally in favor of keeping it. All right. Uh, and that basically brings us to the end, actually. I mean, we've been talking here for quite a while, but uh, that risk to commanders, which we already briefly touched on, and I think we liked that. Mm -hmm. uh, and then he wraps it up with his designer notes and uh, a note about the three different formations, line, column, and skirmish. And that is something I think that merits a little bit of discussion as to what exactly the benefit and value of being in one of these formations should be. Um, column, column in this period is, is, is pretty rare for mm. actual battle unless you were like assaulting a field work. And that is something also that Jim was talking to me about. So should columns, because we're doing fixed movement, should we just give them a better movement rate? I mean, why the hell would somebody be in a column? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's the only reason to be in it. So yeah, I think it's a movement rate. Um, you're talking about a fixed bonus for being in column. Right. Well, we're we're planning to do all of our movement rates as fixed. So, are we just going to say that you know if you're in column, you get to move farther? Yeah, you get to move farther, and also you can more easily avoid terrain, which mm -hmm. prevents you from taking DPs. So maybe you don't take a DP. Obviously, I don't think you would, but in column movement, I like that. I like that. Yep. Okay. Um. So here's another question: Why would anybody ever want to be in skirmish formation? Well, as we saw, we talked about during the firing, there actually looked like it uh, might have been a bigger benefit than we liked. Um, maybe that's why. Maybe because that's why. I don't see any, I see no benefit. I don't see anyone ever wanting to be in skirmish formation, because when you look at the combat table, if you get hit in skirmish formation, it's nasty. <laughs> well, there's the bonus move. That's another way to get a bonus move, I suppose, right? Mm, okay. But that's that. That's kind of quirky. I'm not going to... The idea that somebody would go into skirmish to move faster than go back into line, that that doesn't happen. I mean, columns should make that more attractive to try to do that. So I guess being fired on in skirmish is is a is a benefit. Uh, I guess the skirmishers could soak up the, you know, if you use them, you know, as a screen to soak up the disruption points that might come on the firing. So they're, they're an effective screen. So it's, I guess it's, what is it? Uh, minus two for your, we'll have to decide what, like if you're, if you're doing dice, if I'm rolling the number of dice per base, you know, so I've got six dice maybe, and I'm firing at skirmishers. Is that just a simple, I cut my bait, my number of dice in half or how do you? Maybe. Yeah. So, or instead of hitting on fives, I only hit on sixes. Yeah. So there you go. That, that would be a, I mean, I think I don't think there's reason to strip it out other than uh, the, you know, make sure we don't let the movement. I don't think you never know. But uh, the only people who get it, and militia gets it, interestingly enough, 
Um, yeah, it, that's kind. Of, I thought about limiting that, but there are historical examples sure. of militia skirmishing, so I understand why he allows it. I guess my concern with the skirmishing was that I was worried players were going to be gamey about it and abuse it. Mm-hmm. Um, through which I don't know. Maybe, maybe we just play test it and see if people are abusing it or not. I mean, the idea that I was potentially kicking around, which might be too punitive, is that if you put a unit in skirmish formation. You can't. You can't come out. Yeah. No. You know, a, once you're in skirmish formation, you're in skirmish formation. You're not, those guys aren't getting back into line. <laughs> well, that's a good point. What does it cost to move from one formation to another? He has that as just a universal one command point, I believe. Okay. That's right. That's right. Uh, well, wait a minute. Well, change is changing formation a command point? No, it's a dis. Uh, it is not a command point. Uh, somewhat odd. Uh, it's a disruption. It's under the maneuver section, and it says if you change formation, it takes one full turn, and you take a disruption. That's right. That's right. Or two in some cases, if under fire. We talked two. about maybe simplifying that. So, so in that case, yeah, changing formation. It's actually pretty easy to change formation. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, take that one DP and then. Although I think this is, it'll be interesting as to actually try this in the sense of like, how quickly can you jump from one to five? You know what I mean? In DPs, and so is having one on you. You're like, you know, I'm not happy with this situation. I'd like not to have, you know, as opposed <laughs> to feeling like I can handle up to two and you know, no sweat. But I guess it does. Does the uh, this, this is a question because I think it may be in others. Do um, DPs or uh, disruption points impact movement? Uh, I think they did, actually, and I wasn't crazy about that. You get... Oh, oh, by the way, interesting, because we glossed over this when we talked about movement. Uh, because his movement is random, we skipped over this because we were going to get rid of it, but he says that if you roll a 1 or a 2 on a D6, you take another disruption point. Uh, so... Additional penalty. Yeah, I think that just leads to a. I mean, again, it's it it's the balance of yeah, that's pretty real uh, in terms of hesitancy of units or or impact of that. But uh, yeah, I just wonder how quickly these accumulate. I mean, we've played British Grenadier, um, not many times. I think we only played twice, but I don't. My my memory is not good enough to recall exactly how punitive this was. I, I feel like this is more punitive, and and I could have to. Bra I would browse through this to look, but I I, I recall it. Be I love them in there, and but I thought it hit the right note of like accumulate, you know, combat and um, movement was or change of formation. So I think we've got it, but. Uh, Again, I think the random uh, element there. My question was, if you had, I, I don't think it should, because, you know, if you basically have three, if you're penalizing people with casualties and you're slowing them down, I mean, it's like. Too much. Right, exactly. So. Too much. It looks like it's not there. So I think we were on formation changes and it looks like you have to pay for it. And then the question is, the open question is, is there anything gamey that could happen with the current skirmish? situation we'll see but yeah maybe we just play it out yeah we'll we'll play it out and see if people are abusing it or not 
I like how uh, he has this line here. Regulars are too sensible to consider skirmishing, right? <laughs> so what's the, de- I mean, I'm looking, you know, and that gets to the combat. It's it's brutal in, in combat, but if you're just mo- moving around, uh, but militia are happy to do it, you know. Now that we've reached the end of the rules, I do want to backtrack to one thing that we talked about adding that now I'm just, I'm not having second thoughts, but I'm wondering how it's going to work mechanically. We're going to create a separate charge phase. We talked about that. Something that you see historically very often in this period is that if one of the two sides, usually the British, got the balls to do a charge and press in with the bayonet, very, very often the Americans did not stand to receive that charge. Mm -hmm. They took off. What we've talked about does not really have anything to incorporate that. You know, we don't have a morale test. It was just like, oh, we're going to create this charge phase, and if you spend all these dice, it's expensive, but you can do it. Is there going to be any chance of the defender not sticking around, or is they just going to close home? Well, the only way to get them to back off would be to have such a point differential um, in the, in the combat points, which is going to be, you know, you have a, you have a deep, there's another question you, it, for resolve it. Well, no, we're switching the combat. So if we're going to the, we're going to the dice, but the result down here would be, um, you know, for example, a nine or more point differential, which we talked about, you could get to by being, you know, British grenadiers versus militia. Right. That's nine points right there. Um, but then you have, I guess that's where I'm sort of uh, stumbling over the change in the mechanism for the rolling the combat dice, right? To get we we said we like the results, the differential. Mm-hmm. Maybe yeah. maybe it's the points that need to change. We like the categories, but I think you'd have to tweak those and look at it and say, okay, what does it take? Because the best he's got here is a standoff. Um, I mean, well, if you take. If you get the differential, you'd be driven back, defeated, or routed. So doesn't that capture the... Indirectly, I guess it does. I mean, I guess that's what you're representing. In my mind, when I was thinking about it, I was like, well, wait a minute, there shouldn't even be a combat. You know, the militia are just going to bolt. I mean, we're not even going to get to the point where we need to roll on this chart. However, I, I take your point, which is that actually this chart is what reflects them bolting. <laughs> They're going to bolt because they got beat by nine or more. <laughs> Well, and you're you're supposed to look at the you're supposed to each the attacker reads their number, which is I'm a plus four or I'm a plus five in right. the and and for me it's easy victory. I still take a DP and the guy other guy is a minus, you know, whatever he is. Um he has his so each each combatant has their own results. I um, like that, by the way. Yeah. And I think three of them Three for the for the for the loser are moving backwards. It's just, and again, if we take DPS in the sense of like it's guys scrambling and getting running into the bushes and never showing up again, or you know, taking a while to pull back together, that that feels pretty good. Okay. Uh, well, I mean, we made it to the end of the rules. Uh, we got through all <laughs> what three two pages, <laughs> and. I think we've got a pretty good starting point. I know we each typed up some notes. I, I mean, are we at a point where we can s- sort of plan on at some point just running a test game and winging it and seeing how it goes? I feel like, uh, given our skill level at winging things on the table, that we could do that. 
we, we are <laughs> damn damn good at winging things. Yes. Really, that'll that'll actually firm up a, a number of open questions. I mean, I think we can take a stab at uh, any of the notes, but I don't think we had a big homework assignment. I think actually you resolve the combat with the the dice uh, rolls, um, one for each stand. I think that's a great solution to that. And I think that we, for simplicity, we can keep it, whatever we think the hit number should be, we do that for shooting and combat. So if we're going to say it's a five plus, then it's always a five plus. Whether you're shooting at a guy or you're in close combat, you roll a fistful of dice. If you got a five plus, it's a success. Right. Well, I think the next step is we try to type up all these notes into a Word document that is somewhat playable. Uh, and we inflict this pain upon other innocent members of the club who don't know what's coming. And they can be the guinea pigs. And we've they've had worse experiences than I'm sure this will be. God knows they have. Yes. <laughs> I have no doubt of that. I think the toughest balance to figure out here, and it's going to take maybe multiple playtests, is to figure out how many CPs to give these commanders. Yeah. Because we've created this table of ways they can spend them, which is in keeping with the original rules, but there are a lot of ways to spend them. And, you know, some of these commanders might have 15 regiments under their command. There's other commanders that might have many fewer. And we're going to have to come up with some kind of consistent formula you know, hey, if you've got X number of regiments, you know, whatever, we divide that by three, and that's how you yeah. get your... I don't know what that number is going to be, and that's going to just take some trial and error. Yeah, that's, that's right. Well, we have uh, yammered on for 90 minutes. Is there anything else that we need to go over, or are we going to try to type this bad boy up? No, I think this is a good uh, stopping point. Uh, certainly got a lot of ideas floating around, but I, I like uh, overall, I think we're... Uh, I think we're, we, it feels like we're heading in the right direction. I think this is actually going to work out pretty well. I can't wait to, to test it, actually. All right, I'll type this stuff up, and uh, maybe, maybe we give it a go on Monday. Okay, Greg. Sounds good. Have a good one. Thanks for the chat. Thank you. I don't know about you, but I found that discussion absolutely fascinating. It was a deep, deep dive into how game mechanics work and how two veteran players think about ways to improve or modify an existing system. And the question now is, will it work? What will happen when Tom and Greg type up their notes and try playing this Frankenstein hybrid game in the club with players who haven't been privy to any of their conversations ahead of time? That's what we call playtesting. And in part four of our podcast series, we'll take you inside the club for a Monday night game session where Tom and Greg discover that their first draft still has a long way to go. Stay tuned. And thanks for listening to Little Wars FX.